Heavenly Father, what a comfort, Lord, it is to know that at your right hand is the Son who is our Savior. And Father, we stand upon that truth. We rest upon that truth. And we know, Lord, that through him who intercedes for us, Lord, we know that you hear our prayers. And Father, you will answer according to your will. Help us to accept your will, whatever that may be. And now we ask your blessing upon our time in the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Revelation together. Revelation chapter 3. Boy, it's been a while since we've been here. Uh, I've had this prepared. We, we've been uh, wanting to... This goes way back to the beginning of January, but uh, because of illness and other, other things, uh, we've been out of our study, uh, the seven churches of Revelation. And so we're coming back to it now, and we have two more uh, churches to, to look at of the seven that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we arrive at chapter th- 3 now, and uh, there are actually three more. There will be two more after what we're going to look at tonight. We come to a church called the Church of Sardis, the Church of Sardis. And first, uh, just a little background to understand the, the city of Sardis. Actually, 500 years before John wrote this letter, Sardis was one of the richest, most powerful cities in the world, in, 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 in Greece. A man uh, named Croesus lived there, and he was considered the wealthiest, wealthiest man on earth. And you might recognize him by his other name. The Greeks called him Midas. Does anybody remember that name? In, yeah, Midas and his gold and the story behind that. But uh, Sardis was built on a cliff that was almost invincible. The city was, was so uh, powerfully protected by cliffs and other things that nobody could conquer it. And, uh, and so they had, had a lot to be proud of with their riches and their, their gods that they worshipped. Um, they, they, they pretty much uh, had it all. And so here we, we're coming to this, this church of Sardis. And we're going to find that the, what is written to the church... Uh, is, is a little different than some of the other uh, things that the Lord Jesus mentions and calls out to the uh, rest of the churches. Now remember uh, that these are letters from the Lord Jesus Christ. These, uh, these, they're seven letters to seven churches, literal churches of that day. And Jesus Christ is the one who is writing these to the churches. And what he does first, he, he always mentions at the beginning the angel or the messenger of the church, that this message, this letter is going to the angel 
of the church or the messenger of the church. Look with me at verse 1 here together. Let's read verse 1. Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now, before we finish verse 1 here, the angel of the church, uh, that word means messenger. So there, there's debate as to what, is that a, a literal angel that is watching over th- that particular s- church? Or uh, other uh, Bible scholars believe that it refers to the, the leadership, the pastor of the church, the one who is the messenger, who is to carry the literal letter, this letter John would write down and hand it to uh, the leadership of that church, and then he would read it and then read it to the congregation. And this would come directly from the Lord Jesus. So again, uh, when it says, and to the angel of the church, that could refer to the leadership or shepherd there or or to the literal angel, but I I believe more it's speaking of of the leadership or pastorate of the church. So to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now here we find what Jesus uh, does when he writes these letters. He gives a short description of himself, of who is writing this. And as we, we won't take time to turn to it, but back in chapter 1, uh, we find out what these things mean. Uh, the seven spirits, he who has the seven spirits, this refers to the Holy Spirit. Now, why is the number seven in there? You would think the Lord would just say, and to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But no, it's uh, the one who holds. Notice he has the seven spirits of God. And they believe that most uh, good Bible scholars believe that the the number seven is there to to, uh, present perfection. It's the number of perfection. And uh, so there are not like seven different Holy Spirits. So just understand that. But this refers to the Holy Spirit. And then the seven stars... Again, we find what that is according to the uh, beginning of Revelation when it's explained that the seven stars are the seven churches. Okay, so this is Jesus Christ who has the Holy Spirit and has the seven churches, the seven stars in his hands. And this is what he says to this church of Sardis. I know your deeds that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. But you are dead. Can you imagine receiving this letter, and you're part of the church, or you're the pastor of the church, and you receive a letter that was written uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and brought by the Apostle John and said, uh, Jesus Christ has this message for you. And then you begin reading it and you hear 
that first part, I know your deeds. And they're probably thinking, yeah, we, we're, we're doing pretty well. We got a lot of good deeds going on. That you have a name. That you are alive. That you have a name that you are alive. So they hear that and suddenly they think, yes, we have a great name in Sardis. Um, This church uh, was thriving in some capacity. I don't know, it may have been just, it may have been financial, but also in possibly deeds they were doing, uh, social work things. uh, But but they were, they were, anybody that talked about Sardis, it was like maybe talking about one of those mega churches that you will come across um, that, that has, you know, tons of programs and tons of things going on and and they're they're they it's from the outside it looks like boy are they being blessed god is really using them or they're they're really on fire for the lord and it could be a large church it could be a small church but it's the name of uh, of the church of sardis that got people's attention it was like if you were writing about uh, all the, all the churches of that time, Sardis would be near the top. Well, there's a blessed church. There's a church that's doing it right. And isn't it easy to look at around and, and look at other churches and go, they must be doing something right because you, it, because of maybe the numbers, there may have many numbers. Sardis may have had, uh, many people coming to the church and so from the outside, looking in, it looked alive and thriving. But then suddenly Jesus says, but you are dead. And again, uh, as we look at these churches, we want to remind ourselves that, that this is for me, that these messages that that Christ is giving to these particular churches, I need to apply to my own personal life. Because you and I are what? The church. We are the true church, the body of Christ. We make up the church. And we make up Jonestown Bible Church together. But it's the individuals on how they, we are living our life as to whether or not we are truly alive uh, in, in God's eyes, that we are truly being effective for the gospel's sake and, and for, for, for the glory of God. And so Jesus calls them out and says, you are dead. So what, as they had a great reputation, but why... Are they considered dead? We aren't given details here. Jesus doesn't give details as to why they are dead. But if you start to think, what would be some of the things? Well, one thing that's not mentioned here is persecution. Did you notice that? There's no persecution in this letter talked about. 
like some of the other churches. So these Christians were not being persecuted. And what can happen when there is no persecution to a church over the centuries? You've known, you've seen it, that it's like America. We're not, you know, we're becoming more and more persecuted here in our nation as Christians. But for the most part, persecution uh, for the Christian church has not been like other countries. And so what has happened to the churches in America? Basically, they, we, 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 it's easy to grow fat and comfortable and, and uh, just uh, set in our ways and, and, and life is just going along pretty smoothly. You know, we have our little bumps in the road, but, but we get, it's so easy for a church to get into a routine of religion, routine of, of rituals, of going through the motions. And sad to say, there are churches um, that are going through the motions, and there's something that is missing usually in that church. And it is, what would, what would cause a church to be considered dead? I believe because it's lacking the presence of the Holy Spirit who is to be at work in a church. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the believers of the church, through the flock, and through the leadership in the church so that the Spirit of God is moving in their midst. But how do we end up quenching the Holy Spirit in, our, say, our, if, if our local body of believers here? What would be the best way to, to become a dead church, so to speak? I think it's whenever it, we would get to the place where we would take this, close it, put it off to the side. And now let's talk. Let me give you my, well, my philosophy. Let me tell you about, you know, how to. A lot of messages of how to do this, how to do that. And all the while, the Word of God stopped being preached. The Word of God is no longer the center of, of the body of the local believers. And so it's removed from the pulpit, and I'm seeing more and more, sadly, more and more pulpits empty of the Word of God, that it's not being preached. And it's being called, this book is being called irrelevant today by Christians even. We're being told that this is an old book, it's irrelevant, yeah, it's got some nice things in it, but pretty much it's, it's not relevant for today. And so they go down this new, these other paths, and it's anything but spirit-filled paths. And I believe that is probably what happened to Sardis, that they began to shrink spiritually. And there, it, it doesn't say, again, uh, notice he says, you are dead. Uh, doesn't give any details again, but he, he says, something can be done about it. And Jesus is saying, I want you to do something so that you can become alive again. Because this church once was alive and thriving 
spiritually. So look at verse 2 with me. Jesus then says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed. The word also is used there, translated perfect. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, no doubt this church was doing all kinds of deeds. And to the outsider looking in and to other churches, they would go, man, look at the things they're doing for the Lord. And yet, Jesus is saying, your deeds don't mean anything to me because they're incomplete. Why? Probably because they are devoid of the, of, of the Holy Spirit working through the, the, the people of that church and getting, uh, uh, getting the gospel out, getting the word out, and living the word. And then what happens when a, when a uh, body of believers opens God's word and begins to study it and begins to apply it? What happens, what happens to that uh, congregation, that group? they suddenly begin to thrive spiritually. That we begin to grow in Christ, and suddenly when I am in the Word, and I've allowed the Word of God to change my heart and life and my thinking, renew my mind, something happens. I suddenly am more sensitive to the Holy Spirit in my life, and I'm more sensitive to sin when it approaches and suddenly I will try, and, and, I'll, and I'll, the Holy Spirit will convict me and go, wait, I see it coming. No, Lord, I'm not going to do this, Father. And, and we can resist temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly we find ourselves under the control of the Holy Spirit. And when we are under the control of the Holy Spirit through the teaching of God's Word and applying it, then what is produced? Galatians 5, the fruits of the what? The fruits of the Spirit, yes. Love, joy, gentleness, kindness, meekness, all those wonderful things. If, you, if, if we were to uh, pick a church and say, okay, Lord, this is probably the kind of church that is alive because you're, you're, and you're pleased with it, it would no doubt be a church where the people are producing the fruits of the Spirit and loving one another. And that there is a unity together as you're founded on the Word of God. You continue to grow in the Word of God. And therefore, we use our spiritual gifts to lift one another up, to, to build one another up in our faith, just like we did tonight. And during our testimony time, how beautiful it was that many of you shared and you shared, and what were you doing? You were sharing from your heart so that others may pray for you, but also others may be encouraged by Denny, by Dan, by prayer requests from Dave and others, you know, and, and these, uh, and, and Brother Bob. These things, what are we doing? We're edifying one another. We're building each other up. And that begins to produce 
more and more of the fruits of the Spirit that we become one. And if you go through the, all the letters of the Apostle Paul, what is the, one of the main themes he continues to, uh, to zero in on? And that is the unity of the body of Christ. The unity of the body of Christ. And when, that, when we see the unity, we suddenly will begin, I believe, to see a church that has come alive. And so what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, wake up. In other words, you're asleep. You've, you've, you've stopped studying God's word. You've stopped really growing together. Something's missing. So wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. In other words, they were still holding to some sound doctrine. They were still holding some in the church there. There were some of the things that were, remained from the beginning when they were first, uh, when it, the church was first founded and, and the people were saved at the beginning. But notice he says, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. In other words, he's saying, your church is almost is, is not going to be anymore. Because if, if a church doesn't have the Holy Spirit working in it, then that church is not going to last. Oh, it will last according to the, to the world standard, maybe, and could even advance materially and programs and everything else. But God looks at it as he says, your deeds have, been found, uh, have not been completed in the sight of God. So the Lord Jesus is, is calling this church out, and I have to look at my own life, and basically I have to say, Larry, are, are, you, are you still spending the time in the Word you need to? Are you still seeking my face as the Lord speaks to me through this? Do you, are you seeking me and wanting to be more like me, the Lord Jesus Christ? And this should speak to all our hearts, that I don't want to be one of the ones that brings deadness to the body of Christ. But if I, if, if, if I am uh, living the Word of God, I'm reading it, studying it, and allowing it to transform my life and my mind, it will, and it transforms my behavior, my attitude. Something wonderful begins to happen. And suddenly the Lord says, now there's one of my flock that's alive. And we would have the blessing of God. So look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. In other words, go back. Go back into time and remember when you were on fire for the Lord, when you, you were excited about the gospel. And keep it. And then he says, and repent. Repent. Repent of the sin. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. You see here again, as Jesus has said to some of the other churches, I will remove your lampstand. I will, I will remove you if you don't change your ways. And basically he's saying that here. Jesus is saying this to Sardis. He's saying, I'll come like a thief in the night and I'll close your doors. If unless you repent and you wake up and you realize that, uh, what it takes again to be alive in the spirit. 
And so then we come to verse 4. Here's something wonderful. He has a word of commendation. Verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. A few people in Sardis in the church who have not soiled their garments with uh, these things that would cause the church to be dead. There were some. There, there, there were those in the church that were were studying the word of God, growing in the word, in spite of maybe the uh, many others around them are dead. Now, this can be a difficult passage to interpret. Okay, because. Uh, the question arises, so the few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments are, is, every, is he talking about everyone in the church is a believer, but there are a few believers who have not, not been sinning, that the, the, the sin can't be found in their life, and so, uh, but everybody else, though they're saved, they're soiled. You know, they, they've gotten real dirty. And therefore, uh, and so some think that this is referring to like uh, the, the ones that are walking in a worthy manner in the church. Uh, and, and they were. But the other side of this coin that's, that uh, some teachers look at it as is that they're looking at the church which has the tares and the wheat mixed together so that you have, uh, and every church has them. You will have professing people who profess to be Christians in a church, but they really aren't. They profess to know the Lord Jesus and they can tell you when they were saved, but things in their life don't add up. And, and so, but sometimes you, we cannot tell which are the wheat and which are the tares? The wheat represent the true believer in the church. The tares represent the unbeliever who are hiding in the church, and they, they, and they are not true believers, but they are there, and they may be ones that are causing division and other things, but sometimes you don't even know. Uh, you, you, we can't judge. We can't be the judge. Only God is the judge of the heart. But... So, so some think that this is referring to the unbelievers who were in Sardis, who uh, were, had their garments soiled with sin and never were saved in the first place. Okay, so um, I'm just laying that out to you as, as to one of the uh, debatable things as to what that exactly means. Because notice it says at the end of verse 4, and they will walk with me, Jesus says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Walk with me in white. Well, if you study uh, Revelation, right, and other passages of Scripture, when we get to heaven and then we come back with the Lord Jesus, do you remember how we are dressed? What color are we wearing? Robes of white robes of white 
And yet Jesus is saying, so, so basically all believers are going to wear, have robes of white, which represent purity and righteousness. And yet Jesus is saying here, oh, these few people in Sardis, they're going to walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So if, if the scriptures, most of the other scriptures say that we're all going to be dressed in white, but here this one verse says, well, there are the few that are going to be dressed in white and they'll be worthy to walk with the Lord. That would then cause me to think that this passage does is referring to believers in the church and the tares and the wheat. Believers and then there are unbelievers who are professing Christians who are soiled, but, uh, but the church is full of a lot of unbelievers. And yet they are professors, but truly at heart, it's a dead church because they are truly dead. Now, again, this is, this is all uh, debatable, debatable things, but I love the next part here because verse 5, Jesus now speaks of the one who overcomes. And remember, every letter we've looked at, Jesus always adds in it, and the one who overcomes, he who overcomes. And we've discovered from the beginning of our study that the one who overcomes is, a, is the true believer in the church. The true believer, the one who is truly saved, born again. Because it talks about the one who overcomes has all these blessings, okay? So... So if we take verse 5, as we're going to read here, and understand that Jesus is now talking about all believers who've overcome through Christ, and, and they are truly saved, they've overcome sin, they've overcome Satan, and they, they, they belong to the Lord, that this is going to be some of their reward. Verse 5, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. So there it is again, the white garments. And again, if we understand he who overcomes to be the believers, the true believers in the church, then everyone is wearing the white garments here. So we're going to be dressed in white garments. We are overcomers, dear saints, tonight. We who truly know the Lord and are part of his sheep, part of his flock, And he says, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Excuse me. I will not erase his name from the book of life. People have taken this particular verse and taken it and built um, their doctrine of, of you can lose your salvation because of this verse. Well, look. I guess, so God does blot out your, can blot out your name and will blot out your name if you're not, if you're not doing something right. You know, if, if, if you're not uh, obeying the Lord, you can lose your salvation. But no, uh, this is referring to uh, the idea that your name, no believer's name will ever be removed from the Lamb's book of life. It's also called in the scriptures the Lamb's book of life. And it's a book in heaven that has your name in it. 
And the moment you were saved, your name was written down there. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And it can never be erased. Now, in ancient times, they would have a book, say a city, like Sardis, would have a, a, a book of their citizens. And those who were born, those who lived in the city and those who were born in the city, and they would have the book of life. Everyone who was, uh, was born and is living there at that time. And suddenly somebody dies, and then you put, you go, and uh, uh, as soon as somebody dies, the registrar would take the book, and they would, they would suddenly uh, blot the name out, saying, well, this person's no longer in the book of life. They're not living here anymore. And so that's uh, many times uh, how those, the book of life on earth was used. But Jesus is, is basically reminding the overcomer, which is all of us who are true believers, that your name can never be erased from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He is going to confess us before the Father one day. How wonderful it is. And then he he concludes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear. And what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying, listen to this. And there's there's a story in the Old Testament, I think, that uh, really applies to this. So if you'll turn with me in closing here to 1 Samuel. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel 4. And the... uh, And if you look at... uh, Let's let's go and look at... uh, At this point in time, just a little background, that... The prophet priest Eli, Eli, who was the priest in the temple, he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who turned bad. They were raised in the temple, raised in godly ways, but basically they turned away from the Lord. They did sinful things. And so God, and they were priests. They were part of the priesthood. So but God had to, was bringing judgment upon Israel because of the sin that, was, that they had and also the sin of the people at this point. And so, uh, so they went into battle, and <clears throat> look with me at verse 11. While they were, uh, actually verse 10 of 1 Samuel 4. So the Philistines fought And Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell on Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Do you think God was blessing Israel at this time? No, this this is a time of judgment. God is allowing discipline to come upon his people because of their sin, their idolatry, and the sin of, of the priesthood. Verse 11. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They died in the battle. But now, think of it. 
The Philistines, for the first time, got a hold of the Ark of the Covenant. They've got it. And what did the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represented the presence of God. It represented the glory of God in Israel. But now it has been taken and the heathens have it. And God was sending a message saying, Israel, I have left you alone right now because you you forsook me. And therefore, I'm allowing my, my holy Ark of the Covenant to be taken by the Philistines. Look at verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn, dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his chair by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the Ark of the Covenant. He knew they were losing the battle, and he was concerned about the Ark of the Covenant, being the priest. Okay, so the man came to tell it in the city. And all the city cried out that the ark was gone. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does this noise of this commotion mean? And then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Eli asked this. Then the one who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled from before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. Those were the words that shook Eli to the core. Look what happened in verse 18. And it came about when he mentioned the Ark of the Covenant that Eli fell back off the chair backwards beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. Here he died getting the news. He knew that God had suddenly forsaken Israel and taken his hand of blessing off because the Ark of the Covenant no longer belonged to Israel. But I want you to take this with you here. And this is, I believe, gives us a picture of what kind of church Sardis was. And Israel was much like Sardis. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when he heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her, uh, of, of her death, in other words, she was dying as she was giving birth to the child, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Verse 21. And she called the boy Ichabod. You notice the name? He, she named the child Ichabod, which means saying, the glory has departed from Israel. 
because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of of God was taken. I believe that there is, it's as if it were a plaque over Sardis as you would enter that city and the plaque would just have one word on it. And I believe it, it could go for many, many churches all over our country would have the word Ichabod on it. The glory of God has departed. Is there any sadder word than that to be said of a church? That the glory of God has departed. And that's basically what Jesus was saying to Sardis. He was saying, My, you're dead. My glory is not there. Because you have not, you have not heeded my word. And therefore, you look alive, but you're really dead. The glory of God has departed. May the Lord speak to our hearts. And may Jonestown Bible Church never have that name placed upon it. Where the glory of God has departed and we become a dead church. We are alive only because of God's grace, mercy, and because we stand upon the word of God and his gospel. And we'll, we'll preach it and teach it until he comes again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord. Father, for showing us, Lord, our own hearts. Father, there are certain areas in our own individual lives I know that we need to change. Perhaps there's sin unconfessed. There are things, Lord, in our life where we've been neglectful of thy word, Father, and of walking in the Spirit and producing the fruits of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we might come to you, confess, repent, and allow you to have your way in us that we might walk in such a way that would be considered worthy. And it can never be said of us that the glory of God has departed from our life. Even though we know you will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, may we continue to shine to this world around us. Your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.